papers. Yay. What are we watching today? Groundhog Day. Nice. <laughs> people have seen it? Okay, you know he, uh, Harold Rooms just died, right? So, the director. Mm -hmm. Yeah, he was in it. Um, he didn't yeah. direct Ghostbusters, I don't yeah. think. He did? Uh, the first one, maybe not the Oh, did he direct the first one? Huh. I think he did. My girlfriend lived in the building that was the exterior for where, where it took place. <laughs> Isn't that interesting? That's on the final. That'll be on the final. <laughs> what building? Um, okay, so we're going to try and um, be done with Hume and Barclay and Zeno and Kant today. We're going to try. Um, will we succeed? I don't know, but we're going to try. Um, repetition, Kierkegaard's uh, philosophical treatise slash novel, probably more like um, a philosophical argument than a novel, and yet not that much like philosophical argument. Um, repetition is now in the um, Dropbox folder that you have a link to um, through Latte, and where all the other readings are. Um, it's not the whole thing. Um, it's the first two parts. And uh, Kierkegaard, as he always does, writes under the name of a pseudonym. So that pseudonym, um, whose name essentially means the constant one um, in a book about repetition, uh, that's Kierkegaard. Um, so it's about 60 pages, and um, that's what you should be reading for next week. Um, and it's the uh, philosophical reading associated with Groundhog Day. Um, because how, what could be more philosophical than that? Um, okay, so there are a few things that I want to just put together so that we can um, move on, um, having to do with... Um, the Kant, Barclay, to some extent, the Descartes um, reading that you've done, going back to this question of Zeno's paradoxes, and um, going forward as well um, to um, Hume, and to a passage, to a very famous passage in Hume, which I didn't assign, but which I'm going to um, read to you about the relation of the mind to its own perceptions. So now you've all finished Descartes, um, and you were thrilled by it, and it changed your lives. Um, and you now believe in God, right? Um, because he proved it. Um, the main thing about the way he proves it, you may not accept his proof for the existence of God, although um, it's a pretty interesting one. Um, but one thing to um, consider is that the reason there are six meditations, it's not that Descartes really figured this out over the course of just sitting down six nights in a row and thinking, oh my God, I don't know if anything exists to, well, luckily I can trust everything um, because um, it all now makes sense. Um, but the reason there are six meditations is that um, he's recreating the world. Um, that's what he does in the meditations, is that he creates the world pretty much out of his starting off um, being a spirit brooding over the abyss, um, which is what God does at the beginning of Genesis. So the six meditations are <coughs> like Descartes uh, creating the world in six nights rather than six days, 
um, but creating the world as God creates the world in six days. Descartes' creation of the world, this is part of the way that um, he is going to lay the groundwork for Berkeley and for idealism in general. Um, Descartes' creation of the world um, takes the form not of... Um, creating something out of nothing, creating matter out of the void, um, but takes the form of understanding that what he perceives is real, that um, perception and um, everything that founds and causes and motivates and um, provokes perception um, is itself what comes together to form the world. And the way we've been occasionally t using the word world in this class, the Heideggerian um, word world, that is um, when we talked about the way um, broken equipment, broken tools, um, reminds us of the worldliness of the world. Um, all of that, in one way or another, is coming out of... Um, an argument, a way of looking, a way of thinking that Descartes is at the center of and that um, the um, different attitudes towards these issues um, can be described as um, different arguments with or against Descartes. Um, Heidegger uh, was strongly anti-Cartesian, but to be strongly anti-Cartesian means also that you're strongly Cartesian that if Descartes is your antagonist, if what makes you a protagonist is that Descartes is your antagonist, then without Descartes, no Heidegger. Um, so if that's not, we're not talking much about Heidegger here. We may, we probably haven't, but we may have said most of what we're going to say about Heidegger. Um, but that's just a way of describing um, the centrality of the um, claims that Descartes made, even though most people now dismiss them. And certainly the idea that you can reconstruct the world by circuiting through God, as Descartes does, um, by saying that I have ideas that I, that I, an ignorant person, couldn't possibly come up with myself. Therefore, there must be a being greater than myself who has given me those ideas. Um, I have ideas of perfection, so that that being that has given me the ideas of perfection, I who am imperfect, that being who gave me those ideas of perfection, um, must have had access to perfection in a way that I don't. It is evident that a perfect being would not lie, therefore everything that perfect being tells me is not coming from an evil genius or an evil demon, but from a good genius and um, a perfect being, and therefore God exists. Um, if God exists, he wouldn't lie if he's telling me that the world um, is, the w is a certain way, why then the world is that way. Um, so Descartes is reconstructing the world through his perceptions and through um, his assigning a source to those perceptions, to the possibility of um, those perceptions, and assigning a source to those perceptions who would give him true perceptions. And therefore, having figured out that God must exist, 
it's an easy step to deciding that the world exists. So that's um, how Descartes reconstructs the world. It's dubious in, in many ways, and, um, but it's also very appealing and um, very attractive in many ways. So um, Descartes is, um, in, for various reasons, uh, the founder of modern skepticism. And what skepticism is, um, there are essentially two kinds of skepticism. Descartes is the founder of both. And we've talked about this a little bit, but I just want to repeat it. Um, he's the founder of the modern version of external world skepticism. That is, how do I know that I'm not dreaming? And he's also the founder of other mind skepticism, which is how do I know that you're not a zombie or a replicant or a robot? How do I know that everyone else in the world isn't a zombie or a replicant or a robot? Um, one, those look at first like they're two versions of the same question. That is, I might dream of a figure um, and that figure may not exist, and the non-existence of that figure um, is both the non-existence of anyone doing, acting, um, reacting, interacting with me in the way that I've dreamt that figure has done, um, and therefore I would be dr dreaming of that figure the way I might dream that I'm shooting baskets when in fact I'm not shooting baskets. That is, that figure would in my dream have the same illusory status as a basketball and a hoop, um, something that I think I'm interacting with but I'm not, and that would be um, one aspect of the um, skepticism about the existence of that figure. I wake up and the figure doesn't exist. Um, however, I might also be awake and not be able to tell whether something that exists physically has a mind or not. So external world skepticism is this thing, this object that I am imagining or that I am perceiving may not exist. Other mind skepticism, which can also come from dreams, because if I dream of someone unreal, they also don't have a mind. But other mind skepticism isn't solved by some proof that they do exist physically. If it were possible, and perhaps it is, um, there, are, there are good arguments that perhaps it is, but if it were possible to prove that this table existed, that wouldn't by itself prove that some other mind existed. Proving the existence of the external world doesn't suffice to prove the existence of other minds. And so those are different things. Don't lump but split other mind skepticism and external world skepticism. One way to see the difference is um, this is the way that Stanley Cavell, um, whom we've read a bit of and will, I think, read a bit more of, um, uh, puts it, is to say that when it comes to external world skepticism, the really tricky thing or the really unfortunate thing is that there is no one in a better position than I am to know whether the external world exists or not. 
That is, I can't imagine that if only I had more knowledge, or if only I had more illumination, or if only I could look at things from some other angle, if I could look more closely into them, um, if only I could see the world the way someone else does, um, I would be able to tell whether it existed or not. Um, the really strong way you could put this is to say that there's a question, how does God know that the external world exists? How would God be able to be sure that he wasn't hallucinating the universe that he thought he created? Um, if you were God, um, and I hope none of you is, well, I mean, maybe for your sake, I hope one of you is, um, but if you were God, um, why wouldn't you worry that maybe you were just a crazy person who thought he or she was God? Um, Kant actually asks this question. He says um, that he can't put aside the unbearable thought that, if, that from God's point of view, God would be full of anxiety and worry that he might just be a crazy person who thought he was God. Because lots of crazy people think they're God. This is um, um, before certain chemical interventions. This was a standard thing, a standard aspect of megalomania, is people thinking they were God. Schreber, you'll recall, thought he was the wife of God. Um, that for him, remember Schreber is who um, um, the Kiefer Sutherland character in Dark City is based on, or at least gets his name from. Um, Schreber was megalomaniacal. He thought he was a god, and he almost thought that he was god. Um, many people think they're god. Not the majority of people, but many people think that they're god. Um, why wouldn't god worry that he might just be one of those people? How could he prove to himself that he was god? Yeah? Uh, I think Descartes said, because uh, doubt has to do with imperfection, <laughs> yeah, but there are many people who are, who are without doubt and yet are wrong. Um, in other words, what you could say, and these are, this really is a question about um, what it is. I mean, this, this really raises questions about um, how we think and what the relation of um, what our deepest and most unshakable thoughts are to um, our definition of truth. Um, so if there's something you can't doubt, um, it might be that you can't help thinking it's true. Um, but on the other hand, when we look at other people, we see there are things they don't doubt, which nevertheless are false. So the fact that someone is absolutely certain of something, this is Kierkegaard also, who once said, how can you tell me that there is no God when I know that I am saved? And... The answer to that is, you think you know it. The fact that you say you know it doesn't mean it's true. You think you know it. And therefore, you don't doubt that you're saved. But I don't know that you know it. Isabel. Mm -hmm. that they give in false memories, but don't really belong to them. And I don't know if you can really 
Yeah, or at least he would think that. In other words, um, everything, what you're saying is right, and then one possibility is that it would be as intuitively obvious to God that he was God as it is intuitively <coughs> obvious to us that we think. But the fact that something is intuitively obvious to someone, you can find counterexamples, that is, you can find figures who claim that they live outside of time, that they're not temporally bound. I mean, you can't, it's, um, or you could. Um, and um, who simply believe that? And um, will say it with absolute serene certainty. Um, and he'll say, no, look, you're talking to me. That's, that's occurring over time. How can that be? And he will say, well, when I spoke unto Moses and told him to speak unto the children of Israel, um, I spoke to him as well, but I am still a being outside of time. Um, in other words, there's, if you're taking seriously the idea that people can have uh, beliefs that they think are knowledge, um, beliefs that they treat as knowledge but that they can be wrong, then anything which someone purports to know could be wrong. And um, what that would mean then is anything you think you know you would have to consider could be wrong. Now, it might be that God couldn't consider that he was wrong. In, pro in fact, it probably is the case, theologically, that God couldn't entertain the thought that he was wrong about anything. Um, but the fact that he can't entertain such a thought um, doesn't by itself give absolute evidence that he's God. Um, there are things that I'm sure that I couldn't consider that I was wrong about. Um, and yet, I have been wrong. I no doubt am wrong about some of them. So if God was, couldn't even entertain the idea that he wasn't God, because it was as obvious that he was God as it is obvious to us that two equals two, um, nevertheless, in dreams, we've made amazing discoveries, like actually two is three, that is so deep. Um, what if God made the amazing discovery that he wasn't God? That would be really deep, too. It's a possibility. Um, I'm not, look, I'm not saying that if God thinks he's God, he should rethink things. I'm saying that um, the fact that he thinks he's God, um, even with God-like certainty he thinks he's God, isn't enough. And what Kant says is, if I were God, he doesn't quite put it this way, but he almost does. If I were God, I would be completely freaked out because I wouldn't know how that could possibly be. Um, how could that happen? How could um, I find myself God and not wondering how it is that I was God and so on? So any living God, um, and this is a distinction Kant makes, um, any God with consciousness seems to be involved in um, the central problem of all consciousness, which is not knowing how you got to be conscious. Where did consciousness come from? So if you have a conscious God, which is a, a theistic God, a God that we think of as a person, um, in the theological sense of person, um, if you have a conscious God, we can't think 
how that could possibly not be an issue for him. How did he get to be conscious? That is to say, we could imagine it's not an issue for him because he simply doesn't think that thought, but we can't imagine how it couldn't be an issue for him, how his consciousness could not, under any circumstances, be a question, how he could be sure that it wasn't a question, how he could meet a challenge from someone saying, how do you know that you're God? The only answer would be something like, I know it, and I can annihilate you now. Boom. Get buried. And that wouldn't really do the trick, because then you wouldn't know that he was God, because you wouldn't be. Or if you did, if you went to hell or something, you could still wonder, OK, so you have power, whatever, but um, still, how do you know you're God? Yeah. Um, say more about that. So, I mean, I, I'm going to assume that, like, he, like, knows the world exists by virtue of God's choice amongst all infinite possibilities, and what, by virtue of God's choice, that's what he does choose is that's real. So, so, it seems like that kind of holds him. Are you thinking of the dialogues concerning natural religion, or... The inquiry? Or? Yeah, probably the inquiry. Okay, well, Hume has, I mean, Hume, who is um, quite an atheist, um, had lots of um, imaginative ideas of God, as in, well, why can't there be lots of gods, and maybe this world was created by a child god who was just trying out new toys, and that would actually explain a lot of what goes wrong in the world. Um, so Hume, um, when he's speaking in his own voice, um, he uh, tends to um, belittle the transcendent view of God, the Kantian view of God. Um, Kant's got the strongest Kantian view of a living God. There are other versions of God, as in Hegel and so on, which are not necessarily views of a living God, that is a conscious God. But to get back to just to the Cavell um, issue, which has to do with very basic ideas of skepticism, you don't have to get highfalutin about it. I only brought in God because um, God seems to be the gold standard of whether you know that the external world exists or not. Um, if anyone knows that the external world exists, it would be God. That's a very tempting thought. Um, but I think um, that nevertheless the answer is God actually can't know it any more than I do. No one is better positioned to know whether the external world exists than I am. If I could push a button and become God, I might have a 2001 experience, you know, ooh, wow, amazing, hallucinatory, um, but I still wouldn't know any more than I know now that the external world exists. I might forget to ask the question because I'd just be having such a rush of, of um, experience, but I still wouldn't know any better than I know now. Um, there is no better answer, no better proof that the external world exists than what you already have. So that's external world skepticism. And to get around it, you actually have to make 
arguments about what perception is, which is what Barclay is doing, and also what reference is, what it means to refer to something. Um, so um, there are arguments about what it's possible for me to refer to, um, what it's possible for me to use language to refer to. And it may be that, um, the, that built into the very idea of language um, is externality. Um, an externality of a certain sort, uh, built into the very idea of language is a world. Those are arguments, those are ways around the, um, and many of them are probably right, correct, true, good ways around the question, how can I know that the external world exists? Um, and the answer, you could say in a nutshell, and this is the answer um, that Austin is giving, is the word know there is vague. The word know in the question, how can I know the external world exists, is a word that seems to have a clear and crisp meaning, but it doesn't. Um, we're using a word and a concept, knowing and knowledge, that we don't actually really understand. Um, and what a skeptic will say is, actually, I do understand it. Um, and that's what's so terrible, is that I can't know the external world exists. So toy with that idea that if you're asking for Cartesian certain knowledge of the existence of the external world, no one is better positioned to know that it exists than you are, not even God. Other mind skepticism is different. If I'm not sure whether Matthew is a zombie or another mind, someone is in a much better position to know than I am whether he's a zombie or another mind, namely him. So a crucial difference between other mind skepticism and um, external world skepticism is that in the external world, no one can know better than me whether the external world exists. But in other mind skepticism, every other person is, every single person in the world is in a better position to know of his or her own individual existence whether they exist than I am. Yeah, Rita. Um, couldn't you, isn't it, isn't it easy to at least disprove that, there, that at least one person isn't a zombie? How? That Besides you? Yeah, because yep. it, you know everybody here might be zombies, but there has to be somebody that you know. If, if we're all living in a matrix, then it has to be somebody that programmed everybody to speak that uh -huh. knows what language is and how it works. Well, that's what that's what Descartes is essentially saying. Mm -hmm. um, that is that it has to come from somewhere, um, but the question is why. And one way of asking that question, why in this context? That is, um, what, why do things need to be motivated? One way of asking that question is to say, is it possible um, not to have that question be um, come up for you? That's a, this, by the way, is another way of, of distinguishing between these two questions. But is it possible for you not to have the question, where does language come from, come up for you? And the answer is, of course it's possible since children speak without wondering how it is that they understand language. Um, at certain points, this question may arise for them, 
but it's possible not to ask the question, um, which means that it's not the case that somehow built into our, our idea of language is the idea that it was given to us by something outside ourselves. So built into the idea of the external world is the idea that even if we don't ask the question, um, that it's an issue that once we ask, we can't get rid of. Um, built into the question of other minds and of communication with them um, is not the question, um, do we need to have a theory of where language comes from in order to think that we understand language? So is your answer that it just might have always it yeah. existed as a fact of, of the world? Yeah. Um, just as anything else that we believe exists might have existed. Um, I mean, unless you actually do have a theological view, you have to have, um, if you're asking where language comes from, the answer has to be something like it comes out of some evolutionary process. Um, and which means that in some way it was always um, a potential within the universe. Okay. Unless you think it comes from God or from the matrix or whatever, from the gods of the matrix, it simply has to be a potential <coughs> in the universe which doesn't need further explanation. Now, some people think it has to come from God. The well, existence of language actually is, for p some people, the proof of God. But if it's just the potential of the universe, then, then that's still, that, you know, if, you, if, you're not, if you don't believe in God, and you, and you think that it's just the potential of the universe, then that's still, then under that view, it means that there at least has to be some other, some one other person, other mind. Why? Why can't it be, um, you know, if you take a materialistic view of the universe, that is that... Um, that um, it's matter um, interacting in such a way that it became self-replicating and um, that there was a um, sieve um, where successful um, replicants, so to speak, um, replicated themselves, um, you know, that there was differential replication. Um, then all that means is that um, really everything outside of me is matter how I got to be conscious, I don't know, um, but nothing, no description that I'm giving of the evolution of the universe up until this moment um, requires a notion of consciousness. I'm a puzzle to myself, but everything else I'm no more, is no more puzzling than um, the evolution of a flea. Okay, so I see what you mean. I just find it hard to, be, hard to, 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 to believe that uh, a zombie could exist without first having a non-zombie. Yeah. No, I, yeah, I, it's, it's, I think it's hard to believe, but I think that's a contingent fact. That is, everything, again, to quote Wittgenstein, as you'll remember, everything speaks for it, nothing speaks against it. And um, what that means is life as we know it um, doesn't, um, doesn't occur through automated processes. Um, we have a very clear, direct, central, absolute distinction in our own thinking between things which are intentional, that is, um, beings that have intentions and that um, engage in actions, and beings that don't. Um, but that is a contingent fact. Um, the question is, again, it's a question of theory and practice. And what you could say is that in theory, um, I can't know that the external world exists any more than I do know it. Um, I, I just can't know it. Um, in practice, of course, 
the external world exists for all practical purposes. Um, the same with other minds. But in theory, I am no one is better positioned than me to know whether the external world exists. Um, in theory, no one is better positioned than you to know whether you exist. Um, the problem is you wouldn't know whether I existed. But in theory, no one is better positioned than you to know whether you exist. And that's just the way to see the distinction between other mind skepticism and external world skepticism. And it's an important distinction, because in something like The Matrix, in something like um, other Matrix-like stories, there's a great story by Stanislaw Lem called non serviam, which means I shall not serve, which is what Satan um, said, um, getting himself kicked out of heaven. Um, that's, I think, the first Matrix-like story. Um, it's a story about a world um, that exists only um, in a computer. And uh, the programmer, who's got a grant from the government to um, create an artificial world, um, finds these consciousnesses in the artificial world that he's created um, and um, is struck by their theological speculations. And so he's, he is in the position of their creator, um, and he's paying attention to the theology they come up with um, within their virtual world, um, a non-spatial world, by the way, um, within their virtual world. Um, and um, what that can mean and what it does mean in um, the Stanislaw Lem story, there's a book by um, Greg Bear, if anyone's read him, called Blood Music, um, where the um, informational entities made out of junk DNA are the agents that the humans are interacting with, much to their surprise. Um, all of these are beings that don't have to have any conception of an external world. Um, all they have to do is have a conception of other minds. And um, the crucial thing is that if you divide the question, does an external world exist, from the question, do other minds exist, um, you're th it turns out you're thinking about different things. And um, external world skepticism um, doesn't necessarily imply other mind skepticism. And as we've seen, I think a little bit more easy to see, other mind skepticism doesn't necessarily imply external world skepticism. I can think you're all zombies, but I can still think you're going to kill me and eat my brain. Um, because you're out there in the external world, and even though you don't have minds, I could still be in danger. Um, you know, think of movies, again, the thing about a movie is antagonists in movies are always other minds. That's um, crucial to the idea of an antagonist, is that you are going against, or the main character is going against um, another character against whom he is playing. And you play against people thinking um, in more or less the same kind of um, uh, way of thinking as you are. So if you have movies like um, Backdraft, if anyone's seen Backdraft, um, Backdraft is about, uh, about fighting a fire. Um, and so the antagonist in Backdraft is the fire. Um, but the fire is a monster. 
the fire is not, oh, look, there's a fire. What is the physics of fires? Um, the fire is every time the good guys think they've figured out how to control the fire, the fire does something sneaky. And sneaky is the right word, or clever, or brilliant, or unexpected, or the fire hides until um, it can break out unexpectedly. All the ways that the fire acts in backdraft are the ways that another mind acts. So the thing about any narrative is narratives, no matter how solitary a figure is, a narrative will always describe that figure at grips with another mind. One of the things about Beckett's film is that it's not quite clear. Well, it is, I mean, you can see that this is thematized in Beckett's film that um, Buster Keaton, as the main character, keeps thinking he's being perceived by inanimate objects. He keeps seeing not objects, but other perceivers. And that's what is um, um, making him so agitated. Um, but when he finally sees himself, um, it's not clear that what he's seeing there is actually another perceiver. The absolute blankness of his double looking at him suddenly kind of switches things from other mind issues to external world issues. But the crucial thing here, I mean, I don't want to, there, there are other things to say, and I hope this is at least as um, um, enticing and provocative as it might be confusing. Um, but the crucial thing and the thing that um, you should hold on to is the idea that the question, does the external world exist, doesn't solve the question, do other minds exist? And that seems obvious, or more obvious. But also the question, do other minds exist, an answer to that question will not solve the question, does the external world exists, exist? In the matrix, it's possible to think that in the matrix, there, of course there are other minds because their character is interacting with each other. Of course there are other minds. Trinity and Neo are different people. Of course there are other minds. But there is no external world. It's just math. Um, now, that's not actually true about the matrix, but that at least is a possibility that the matrix um, considers. So you can have other minds without an external world. You can have an external world without other minds. Now, the external world skepticism is philosophically much earlier. External world skepticism is what Zeno's paradoxes were meant to raise. So what Zeno did, we've talked about this already, um, what Zeno did in defending Parmenides, um, in arguing for Parmenides, Parmenides basically said, um, there's no such thing as motion, there's no such thing as change, and there's no such thing as difference. Um, Parmenides was the um, monist of all monists. Um, he thought there was only one thing that existed, the truth. And because, which seems um, obvious by tautology, um, what exists is the truth. Um, Wittgenstein later will put this as the world is all that is the case. Uh, Quine will put it as what he calls the ontological question in his great essay on what there is. That's the title of his essay, on what there is. And he begins by saying, 
Um, the ontological question is notable for um, the efficiency um, by which it may be asked. The question is simply, what is there? So you can ask the ontological in three words. What is there? And he says, even more notice notable is that it can be answered in a single word. Everything. So, what is there? Everything. That's all you really need to know about being. Um, Parmenides thinks that also. Um, what is there? Truth. But truth is truth, which means that all of it has to be uniform. It has to be exactly the same. So, there is only one thing, which you can't even call one thing, because that could imply the possibility of more than one. Um, so you don't even call it the one. Um, but you just say, you know, it's what there is. And what there is is uniform in every way, except the word uniform implies a possibility that it couldn't be uniform. So Parmenides solves the question of what there is very quickly. And he calls that the way of truth. Most of his philosophy, then, is, he now goes on to say, is about the way of seeming. And the way of seeming is the illusions that we experience, that we are prey to, that make us not see the truth. And those illusions are that there um, are differences, that there are different colors in the world, that there are different shapes, different sizes, different temperatures, Everything that we perceive, all of that is illusion. Um, and if you then ask Parmenides, but wait a second, if there are different illusions, doesn't that mean there are differences? Because if I have an illusion that this is white and that this is black, then at least in my mind, isn't there a distinction between one illusion and another? To which Parmenides answers, yeah, that's an illusion too. The idea that you're having an illusion is itself an illusion. And the idea, that, the idea that you're having an illusion is itself an illusion is also an illusion. It's illusions all the way down. None of it exists. You don't exist except as part of the one thing which isn't one. You're not having these illusions. And if you think you are, that's part of the illusions that you're not having. Um, so. Some people love this, some less. Um, but the claim that everything we perceive is illusory is a claim that Zeno defended really strongly. And Zeno's defense was to say, if you think about motion, among other things, because motion is rate, of, is rate of change. If you think about motion, um, or if you think about other things that we perceive, you will see that the thought is an incoherent one. That motion cannot exist because Achilles cannot pass the tortoise. And you can see if you race Achilles against the tortoise, if you race any person with any speed at all against your average tortoise, the person will win the race even if the tortoise has a little bit of a, of a head start. And that means that what you're seeing when someone races past the tortoise is an illusion because logically it can't happen. That's Zeno's claim. So Zeno's paradoxes 
are paradoxes meant to show in defense of his teacher Parmenides. They're paradoxes meant to show that everything that we see is an illusion, that we are not, what we're seeing couldn't really be happening. And therefore, since it can't really be happening, it has to be an illusion, and what we think we're seeing in the external world, we're not seeing in the external world. Um, so that's Zeno's claim, um, and that's a claim which um, gives a lot of credence to the idea, or to, it gives a lot of power to the claims of skepticism. If what we perceive can't be true, if what we perceive is incoherent, if the possibility of perceiving the kinds of things we perceive is incoherent, then we must not be perceiving what's really happening. And if it turns out that it's incoherent for anything to happen, and that's what Zeno is arguing, that any description of anything happening is incoherent. That's what Zeno is arguing. Um, then anything that we perceive can't really be happening. And therefore, it's all illusion. Um, so that is the pre-Socratic claim. That's the claim that goes back to before Socrates, um, the claim that Plato has Socrates attempting to argue, attempting and failing to disprove in the dialogue that he had with Parmenides and Zeno called the Parmenides. That's the claim that Plato, um, in some sense, embraced. Because Plato, in some sense, in, in a lot of ways he disagreed, but in a lot of ways he would come to agree, because what goes on in the cave turns out to be all illusion. That is, what's in the cave um, isn't real. It's illusion, just like Parmenides said, just like Zeno said. Now, just like they said, no, not quite, um, but close enough that we live in um, an illusion that we take for reality. There is no external world. Um, it's only a further step to say it's in the cave of the mind rather than the cave of the world that these illusions are flickering. Um, so that is the idea of external world skepticism. Now, Zeno's paradoxes, although Barclay doesn't name Zeno, Zeno's paradoxes come up as what Barclayan idealism can solve. Um, so what Barclay says about them is he does them in the question of extension, of um, how long something is. Um, you may remember this part. We talked about it a little bit in the... Um, <clears throat> principles of human knowledge. Um, but what Barclay basically asks is a question that's going to be asked through to the end of the 19th century, which is how can you have any finite quantity of something that's infinitely divisible? That is to say, um, it's only at the end of the 19th century that um, scientists were certain there were such things as atoms. Um, the modern idea of atoms is um, basically introduced at the end of the 18th century um, 
when it was shown that there was um, a fixed proportion of elements in every compound, that if you had two um, liters of hydrogen um, and one liter of oxygen and you mix them, you got water. And if you had more than two liters of hydrogen and you mix it with one liter of oxygen, there'd be hydrogen left over. And if you had less than two liters of hydrogen and you mix them with one liter of oxygen, there'd be oxygen left over. So what Dalton and people at the end of the 18th century realized was that there was a fixed proportion of elements which combined with each other in fixed proportions to make compounds. But what they didn't know, although Dalton believed, was whether when you fixed a proportion of hydrogen, say a liter of hydrogen, um, you had a certain number of hydrogen particles. That is, how much was a liter of hydrogen? And the question is, was there a certain number of hydrogen particles in a liter of hydrogen? Or was it hydrogen all the way down? So the way to ask this is to say, let's say, here, I'm doing it again. That's OK. Let's just say that you have um, a liter of hydrogen there. And let's just say you have an empty liter here in the vacuum. Um, OK, we can talk about a liter of hydrogen and we can talk about a liter of vacuum, which is just a liter of space, of empty space, let's say. Um, the empty space seems infinitely divisible. That is, there is no smallest unit of empty space. Is there? Physicists don't answer. Physicists don't answer. Anyone else? Is there a smallest unit of empty space? Yeah, I said, stop with the physics. Yeah, there are Planck lengths that some people think that space and time are grainy, but that raises questions too. Um, but if you don't start bringing in various ideas from quantum theory, including Heisenberg uncertainty principle and Planck's constant and so on, if you just have an intuitive sense of space, a classic the Euclidean sense of space, um, the question is, is there a small, smallest unit of space? Um, Euclid famously said that a point is something that has position but no dimension. And what that means is that no two points could touch because then they would be in different positions, and yet there would be a point that they had in common. But a point is all they are. So a point can't have a point in common with another point unless it is that other point. Does that make sense to people? So you can think, OK, here's a circle, here's a circle. Maybe we should watch the point. No, I guess not. So here are two circles, and they're touching here, so that's the point they have in common. That's their tangent. Um, so let's do tinier and tinier circles, and they'll still have a tangent, and that tangent will always be a single point. So when you have just a point, can it touch another point at a tangent so that it's touching another point, but it's not the same as the other point? And the answer seems to be no, because a point is what it is. No point has a point on it that isn't the point itself. Because that's all it is, is the point. This is actually an argument that Zeno made. Um, Zeno said there can't be an edge 
to any object because the edge would either exist, in which case it would have a shape, in which case the edge would have an edge, and we'd have to look at the edge of the edge, and we'd just have the same problem, or the edge wouldn't have a shape, so it would be nothing. So there's no such thing as an edge to an object. And therefore, there are no objects, and therefore, it's all illusion. Um, that's another argument that he makes. So if you have a leader, but let's just say, look, but we know there's extension. I know that this is less space than that. It's not less air molecules. If I do this on the moon, it's true also. So what we'll say about empty space is you can have empty space of any extent that you want without worrying, is there a unit of space that you can count? You can count inches, but you can't count space atoms, tiniest, tiniest bits of space. But if you can have space without space atoms, why can't you have hydrogen without hydrogen atoms? And that's what Ernst Mach thought. Einstein's teacher, Ernst Mach, didn't believe in atoms. Um, and it was really only Rutherford who proved the existence of atoms at the beginning of the 20th century. So um, the idea is you could have as much hydrogen as you wanted without thinking that you were counting numbers of hydrogen particles, just as you could have as much space as you wanted without thinking that you were counting numbers of spatial particles. Um, that's one argument. The other argument is no. If you are measuring two hydrogens for every oxygen, then it's two for one. Two particles for every particle of oxygen, so there must be something you're counting. And that was a, an argument in physics, philosophical physics, um, that went on until the beginning of the 20th century. Um, that question is a question that goes back to Zeno, because it's the question that Zeno is um, asking about, really, whether there's a place that Achilles can be passed, I mean, can pass the tortoise. Is it possible? that there is such a place. And if space is infinitely divisible, it appears that there, it isn't possible, because Achilles would keep getting closer and closer to where the tortoise is. Every, do you, people remember how this goes? That if the tortoise has a head start, every time Achilles gets to where the tortoise was, the tortoise has moved on a little bit. And Achilles has to catch up with the next place the tortoise was, but the tortoise has moved on, et cetera, ad infinitum. So if space is infinitely divisible, then Achilles can get closer and closer to catching up to the tortoise without ever catching up to the tortoise. Now, if space is not infinitely divisible, then Achilles apparently could catch up to the tortoise. What does this have to do with movies? Well, it, this is what it has to do with movies. If you wanted to show, this actually happened to a um, physicist friend of mine. Um, yeah, I think it's worth saying. Um, you know that movies are shot at 24 frames per second, right? 24 FPS, that's one of those numbers you should know. Okay, 24 FPS, never forget. Uh, Jean-Luc Godard defined cinema as, anyone know? A lot of things, but in this context, cinema is truth 24 times per second. 
That was uh, Godard's um, definition of cinema. Truth, 24 times per second. If you read Thomas Pynchon's, not so great, but still you should read it because it's Thomas Pynchon's novel, Vineland, um, the revolutionary group in that novel is called um, 24 FPS, 24 frames per second. Um, videos, TVs, show um, videos and broadcasts, if you remember what those are, um, at 30 frames per second. That is um, the... Um, alternating current that we get um, through our plugs is essentially alternates at, at 60 cycles per second and so what happens when you see something on it when you see something on a TV screen is the screen I don't know what the deal is with plasma TVs but essentially the screen is refreshed 60 times a second and um, what that means is each frame is shown twice so that you get a 30th of a second for each frame now, if you make a movie at 24 frames per second and you try to show it on TV at 30 frames per second, the movie will go too fast. Let's say you shoot, since, we're, since we started with Mark Lee, let's say that you shoot um, 10 seconds of a second hand moving along a clock at 24 frames per second, how many frames will you have used? This is easy. 10 seconds, 24 frames per second. How, what? 20. No, 10 times 24. 240 frames will show you 10 seconds at 24 frames per second because each second is 24 frames, and there are 10 of them. And let's see, 10 times 24, 0 times 4 is 0, 0 times 2 is 0, 1 times 4 is 4. Yes, and I did it in my head. 10 times 24 is 240. What? Oh, if you do it at 30 frames per second. Yes. Now, if you broadcast it on TV and you have 240 frames and you're broadcasting them at 30 frames per second, it'll take 8 seconds to broadcast what you filmed at 24 frames per second for 10 seconds. Okay, does that make sense to people? It comes out fast on TV. The reason old movies look so jerky is they were actually shot at 16 frames per second. If you look at movies from the teens, um, they're shot at a slower speed than modern movies are shot. They're shot at 16 frames per second. But they're played back at 24 frames per second. And that's one reason that sometimes they're played back at super speed. So there's a technical fix to this, but not a good one. The technical fix is something called, anyone know? Stretch printing. And what stretch printing is, is that when you had 16 frame per second movies that were played in modern projectors, every second frame was doubled. So you would have, let's say um, someone were throwing a ball, you would have frame one, frame two, frame three, frame four, frame five, frame six. And so that way, by doubling every second frame, the 16 frames per second um, would be timed the same as in a 24 frame per second projector. Because you would still get 24 frames per second, you'd get eight extra frames, which are the eight doubled frames. Okay, you're following this even if you're not quite following the arithmetic. Um, when you watch a movie on TV, a movie that was shot with film, 
every fifth frame is doubled. So the stretch printing isn't nearly as obvious, it's not nearly as jerky as it is with um, 16 frames per second going to 24 frames per second, but it is still a little bit jerky because every fifth frame is doubled. Actually, it's every tenth frame is, is double, double, but forget that. Um, every fifth frame is doubled. Um, so a physicist friend of mine actually was doing milk drop experiments, which are always interesting, um, which is what happens if you drop some milk onto a surface of water and you watch it bounce. Um, does the milk bounce? Does the water bounce? How do the waves propagate from the water? And he thought, oh my god, all of physics is wrong because he was looking at frame-by-frame -frame, um, videos of milk drop experiments. And um, what would happen is the milk would bounce and then it would stop <coughs> right in midair for a thirtieth of a second. They don't go up again. And he thought, oh my god, Newton is wrong, Einstein is wrong, I'm going to win the Nobel Prize, I'm the most important person who ever lived. And then he learned about stretch printing. And he was very embarrassed. Um, because what happened was, it was not, it was that every fifth frame was just doubled. Um, so, if you were a physicist and you were trying to sh see whether the, the external world existed or not, you might try to film Achilles and a tortoise racing each other. And if you did that, and then examined, now forget the stretch printing part, just imagine examining frame by frame what you saw. If you, so what you're filming is Achilles passing a tortoise. That's what the film is. Um, there's similar scenes in Brick, you know, so a car is just whooshing down the road and it passes something that's moving slowly. So you're filming Achilles passing a tortoise. So, what would you, what do you think you would see and, um, if you filmed that? Yeah. And you already made the distinction by saying he was passing the tortoise. Yeah. Not catching the tortoise. Uh, yeah, but he does pass the tortoise. Yeah, but by uh, passing the tortoise, it's like, it, by passing the tortoise, um, he doesn't need to make up the micro distance that the tortoise has made since his last podcast. He's just moving, and he moves right past it. But if he was trying to kind of like using this kind of point theory of like motion, if at each time point like the turtle was actually the tortoise was actually moving and point like a distance, then he would have to traverse that, and then in that time it would move. And it's true, but it's like a point trying to catch a point rather than a point moving at a speed and being able to pass it is where it, you can you solve the problem to some extent because you're able to pass the tortoise. You go right by it. You don't. You're never at one point catch it. You just at a certain point there's a remainder. You're yeah. moving at a speed. But now you're describing this at um, normal at normal playback. I'm saying if you were to oh, now okay. examine the film frame by frame, what would you see in the frames? Yeah. So you would have a frame in which Achilles is behind the tortoise, and then the next frame he would be in front of the tortoise. You can't really see where he's passing the tortoise. Essentially. Okay. No matter how much you slow it down, even if you shoot it at three thousand frames per second, you'll still have the same problem. Well. I mean, at, at some point, you could see something that looks vaguely like he's caught the tortoise. I mean, yeah, but they... But then at that point, he's ahead of the tortoise. Well, it, it depends on, like, the, 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 the graininess of the thing. Like, yeah, yeah so, but the idea is just imagine that you have technology as fine-grained as you ever need it to be. That is, you can always improve the technology to get finer grains. So let's say you're shooting it at 3,000 frames per second. 
or at 30,000 frames per second. You know, do people know about Harold Edgerton's photos? Is this something people know about? Can you just images? Harold Edgerton, E-G-E-R-T-O-N. These will blow your mind. They are surrealistic a little bit, but yeah, you'll see. Like the drop the water and the red. Yeah. Like a, it's like a very famous image of like a red background, and then there's like a ring. The of corona drops. Exactly, a corona drops coming up. No, 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 no. But there's there's some there's some even sweeter ones that um, I'll show you when, when the class will be worth it for this. Stuff. Oh really? Yeah, that's right. They do. Yeah, they sometimes show. It. Yeah. All right. So um, if no matter how fine-grained you had it, let's just stipulate. Um, the three possibilities of what you would see in any frame is Achilles behind the tortoise, Achilles in front of the tortoise, or Achilles and the tortoise at exactly the same place. OK, those are the only three possibilities. Achilles behind, Achilles in front, Achilles and the tortoise at the same place. So if you, if you film Achilles passing the tortoise, and you look at it frame by frame, eventually you will find two frames, or possibly three, where the, the outside frames are Achilles behind and then Achilles in front, and there might be a middle frame, which is Achilles where the tortoise is also. So even if, I mean, what we can say is almost certainly, um, if you were looking fine-grained enough, you would never see Achilles and the tortoise in exactly the same place. That is that if you looked at it with um, a large enough microscope, you would see that there was a tiny difference with Achilles either just a tiny bit behind the tortoise or a tiny bit ahead of it. But let's just say by pure absolute chance, yeah, do this one. So this is a bullet that's just passed through an apple. And Edgerton took this at something like one ten thousandth of a second exposure. So <clears throat> what's happened here is that you're seeing a ten thousandth of a second slice of time. Um, what do you think's about to happen to the apple? Splat. The apple is going splat, but it hasn't gone splat yet. The bullet's gone right through it. So Edgerton took these amazing photos with strobes, um, with extremely sensitive film um, of extremely fast action at extremely short exposures. So this is something like, I think his shortest exposures are 100,000 of a second. Um, so what he's doing is cutting motion down into particles of 1 100,000 of a second of length. Is, is there a playing card one? That's another cool one. Yeah. No. So here a sharpshooter has um, shot a bullet right through a king of diamonds. And um, it's scattering. I mean, talk about bullet time. Um, the card hasn't started falling yet because this is, let's say, what's that, about three inches? So this distance is going to be about two inches, right? Wouldn't you say the top of a playing card is about three inches? So this is as far as it takes a bullet, which is supersonic, so over 700 miles an hour, to go about three inches. Um, so just a tiny, tiny, tiny amount of time. Not enough time yet for any of this 
to start collapsing. So just imagine he had made a movie of Achilles and the tortoise. You might see Achilles here. You might see Achilles passing the tortoise. You might see Achilles here. If it were absolute pure good luck, you might see it would be like seeing the front of the bullet and the edge of the card simultaneously. That would be the bullet and the card where you couldn't tell which one was in front, which one was to the right of the other. Um, remember also this bullet is spinning and we can't see the spin either um, because he's capturing it at so fast a shutter speed. So if you did that with Achilles and the tortoise, Achilles would almost certainly, I mean I'm going to say certainly but it doesn't matter, would certainly never be exactly caught up with the tortoise. No matter how fast the film you had, Achilles would either be behind the tortoise or ahead of the tortoise, but let's say because this isn't worth arguing about, that you had three shots, Achilles behind, Achilles caught up with, Achilles ahead of the tortoise. You would still want to know, how did he get from being behind the tortoise to being caught up with the tortoise? Because that's the whole issue. If he's caught up with the tortoise, we're not going to worry too much about it. But how did he get from being behind the tortoise in the first shot to being caught up with the tortoise in the second shot? Well, I know let's film it with even faster film. So instead of with um, 100,000 frames per second, let's have a million frames per second. And then we could see how we caught up. Except that we couldn't, because we would still have a frame with Achilles behind the tortoise, and then Achilles caught up with the tortoise. We would never have a frame which had him catching up, because any two frames would show him either behind the tortoise or not behind the tortoise. And you could never get him actually to catch up with the tortoise. Yeah? And isn't that just the very nature of like breaking things up into individual frames? Yeah. But the question again is if we're trying to see how in reality he could catch up with the tortoise, um, what we do is we're saying to catch up with someone is to say there is a moment, a point, um, a time when Achilles is caught up with the tortoise. And that's breaking, and the very idea of motion seems to require us to be able to say, look here and now look here. There's a difference between those two frames, and that's what motion is. Wasn't that even just time? Yeah. Which, which motion is heavily based on? Yes. Yeah, exactly. So what Barclay does, this is the point, is Barclay, rather than saying, oh my god, I don't see how this will happen, no matter how much we break down space and time, we still can't solve Zeno's paradox, Barclay's answer essentially is, <coughs> you, don't, you can't break down space and time that much, because it's all perception, and there are limits to our perception. And what we can't perceive doesn't exist. So all that you can do when you break down space into its smallest units, for Barclay, it's clear that space does have smallest units, that the idea of an infinitely divisible space makes no sense to him. Space does have smallest units. Time does have smallest units. How small are the smallest units of space? They are the smallest units that it's possible to perceive. Now, that doesn't mean that it's possible to perceive just using your own eyes unaided, 
but that it's possible to perceive no matter what mechanisms we use. So you could say that, okay, we can use microscopes and we can see much smaller units of space than um, we could before the invention of microscopes. Barclay knew that, but there were still limits to how small a unit of space you could see. Now, it turns out we can use electron microscopes and see still smaller units, but we can still perceive them. So for Barclay, the smallest unit of space, because to be is to be perceived, space could not be any smaller than what we perceived it as being. So the smallest unit of space is the smallest thing we can perceive. And therefore, space is not smooth and continuous because that would imply that there were smaller distances than we could perceive. If space were smooth and continuous, there would be smaller distances than we could perceive. If time were smooth and continuous, there would be smaller temporal durations than we could perceive. With technology, you know, as I say, it doesn't have to be unaided. So for Barclay, what he's essentially saying is that movies actually capture everything that is our experience of space and motion. And not only that, did anyone, I don't think anyone did, at least that I've come across yet, but did anyone um, do The Man Who Shot Liberty Valance? Um, did people watch those clips? All right, well, The Man Who Shot Liberty Valance, I'll just tell you, you should watch those clips, they're fascinating. Um, it's an amazing movie. Um, what happens in The Man Who Shot Liberty Valance is that um, Jimmy Stewart thinks that he shot Liberty Valance. And um, he thinks so because Liberty, because Liberty Valance goes for his gun, um, shoots Jimmy Stewart a few times. He's about to shoot him yet another time. And Jimmy Stewart shoots wildly, and Liberty Valance collapses. And that's the story, and that's what we believe. Um, then, at the end of the movie, what we find out is John Wayne has been watching their confrontation. And as Liberty Valance is about to shoot and kill Jimmy Stewart, John Wayne shoots Liberty Valance simultaneously with Jimmy Stewart's wild shot. And because the shots are simultaneous, Jimmy Stewart doesn't hear John Wayne's shot go off because his own shot drowns the sound. And Liberty Valance collapses, and Jimmy Stewart thinks he's done it. Um, and what happens there, then, is that it looks to Jimmy Stewart like he has taken a shot, and part of that action is that Liberty Valance has collapsed dead. But Liberty Valance's collapse is not connected to Jimmy Stewart's shooting. They come together only in his mind as I shot Liberty Valance. I am the man who shot Liberty Valance. They come together in his mind as a single thing, but in fact they are... Um, a conglomerate of two different things which are perceived together as a single thing. So for Barclay, what happens is um, Achilles is behind the tortoise. Achilles is ahead of the tortoise. Those are two distinct perceptions. Achilles behind, Achilles ahead. There's never a moment in reality that Achilles is passing the tortoise because all that matters 
is perception. And what it means for Achilles to have passed the tortoise in common language is we had a perception of Achilles behind the tortoise. We had a perception of as small an amount of time as we can perceive passing, passing. And then we had a perception of Achilles in front of the tortoise. And that sequence of perceptions is all that Achilles passing the tortoise is. Is a perception of him behind it, a perception of him with it, perhaps, and a perception of him ahead of it. And how we get from one perception to the other for Barclay is a non-starting question because you don't have to explain how you get from one perception to another. Perception is the basis of all other explanation. It itself is not what has to be explained. It's what explains everything else. And so the perception of Achilles passing the tortoise is the reality, because to be is to be perceived. Now Kant, and this is um, where I wanted to get to, and we won't quite today, but when Kant talks about how we tell the difference, this is really crucial in Kant, how we tell the difference between a house and a boat, because that's really what that last section of Kant that I had you read is about. How do you tell the difference between a house and a boat? The answer for Kant is this, that we see them both as a sequence of perceptions. That's what he says. If you look at a house, you look at the window, you look at the door, you look at the roof, you look at the door, and so on. We look at a boat, and it's also a sequence of perceptions. All our perceptions come as sequences, like frames in a movie. We perceive something, we perceive something else, we perceive something else, we perceive something else. The difference between knowing that a house is not moving and knowing that a boat is moving is that the sequence with which we perceive the house can happen in any order. It doesn't matter when we're looking at something not moving what order we look at its different parts in. But if the order matters, if we see the boat and it's small, and then we see the boat again, and it's bigger, and we see the boat again, and now we can look at the poop, and now we can look at the um, sail, and now we can look at the keel, and now we can look at the rudder, and now we can look at the kubernetes, the steerer. Um, if that sequence of perceptions is ordered, then we're looking at something moving. But in both cases, perception is thought of proto-cinematically as a sequence of individual perceptions that get connected in our minds, whether through random or through sequential access. And the difference between motion and stillness is the difference between random and sequential access. And that is what Kant is getting out of Berkeley, who's to some extent getting it out of Descartes, but who's really getting it out of his um, argument against Zeno and the importance of Zeno's paradoxes. Okay, um, if you don't have your papers in, get them in. How do you want them turned in? Um, electronically is fine, whatever you want. One question. Yeah. How can I turn in my, my video? Because um, I have it in my Google Drive, but I don't have enough space in my Dropbox to email it to you. It's like 90, meg 90 megabytes, so I can't email it to you. Oh my god. Um, can you give me a DVD or a CD? My computer doesn't have it this drive. Right. Can you bring I, it up? I can, I can show it to you on Thursday's class if you want. Um, show it to me at some point. But if you yeah. can't, have you tried Box? 
Box? I think Box may let you have um, bigger files than, um, than Dropbox. I'll try because it's a pretty big video. Yeah. If not, just try to break it up. It's all right. So it's okay. Okay. I haven't really unpacked this at all, so but okay. I was just thinking about um, 